Throughout human history, societies have grappled with fundamental questions of how to organize themselves, the proper relationship between the individual and the state. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we confess that a little intellectual elite can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. This alternative vision argues that ordinary men and women are too small-minded to govern their own affairs. That order and progress can only come when individuals surrender their rights to an all-powerful sovereign. Now we can see a new world coming into view. A world in which there is a very real prospect of a new world order. The international order that we have worked for generations to build. And today that new world is struggling to be born, the dream of a new world order. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be continuing, of course, with this parallel between the Reformation and modern times and different shifts that are going on, power shifts and institutional players that are filling different roles and changes that are happening, all these types of things. Today we're going to talk a little bit more about the role of the church and lords and kings and how this relates to the modern day state and corporations and possibly technocracy and these types of institutions and structures and how all this plays out through different changes that are happening now as well as changes that happened during the time period of roughly the Reformation. I would like to do a few full-spectrum overviews in some of these parallels today where I go all the way from the fall of Rome to looking at the future that is yet to come today. And the parallels play out pretty well here, and it goes all the way back to the early stages as well as all the way forward to future stages. So that's kind of something that's going to play out as we go. The first example of that would be what happened when Rome fell? So when Rome fell, roughly, and there's, again, plenty of debate, if you listen to the historical interviews I did at the beginning of the season, there's not really a consensus on the exact date and the exact conditions for the fall of Rome. But in general, from a broad perspective, as Rome fell, the state, the Roman Empire, had a very solid and a very complex, but a very effective system for governing all of its territory, and this started to fall apart. Well, outside of Rome itself, a lot of lands were held and centered around churches and held roughly in the power of the local bishops. And that was a structure that the church had set up. They had a specific hierarchy, and there would be a bishop over a given geographical area. There would be a church there, sometimes a monastery, and there was a lot of trade that centered around those places, as well as the church filled a huge role in the everyday life of peasants and the local people. So... Again, if you want more in this, go back and listen to the interviews. If you hadn't already, we talked a lot about these different factors. But as Rome fell and the state started to fall apart, there was this natural placeholder and this natural filler for filling in a lot of these roles and someone that the people would look up to because they already did. It was 
the church. It was the local bishops. And so these bishops went from being strictly in a religious role to also playing a political role and a governing role. And that was out of necessity. But this was also a time of corruption entering into the church a lot more, at least, than it had previously. And there were bishops that kind of took charge and did so out of their own self-interest because they wanted more power, they wanted more wealth, they wanted more control, these types of things. They wanted a higher status, and here was the opportunity, ripe for the picking, ripe for them. And so they stepped up and filled that role for various reasons, depending on the people you're talking about. And it wasn't always bishops, but the bishop role was one that was very established and probably was in the right range of the hierarchy to take over these types of things. And as this happened, it even more solidified the role of the church coming into the Middle Ages and out of the era of the Roman Empire. And that is when we have this idea of Christendom start to develop, where it's all of the Christian peoples of Western Europe, largely. And so you had this structure where the state started to fall apart, and the church stepped in and started to fill that role. And that's the way things played out. The parallel that I'm mainly focusing on for the historical example is then, later on, the fall of the church out of that more universal governing role and the rise of the nation-state. And these things happened all over again, where the church started to break apart the church empire, so to say, started to fall. And who was there to pick up the slack? It was the nobility. It was the beginnings of these monarchies that stepped in and these nation states that came into being. That is who filled the role. And so the state came into power. Well, now we are looking at post-Reformation in the Western world and in our current environment, the state still is the one with all of the power, so to say, the one filling this role that the Roman Empire filled, and then that the church filled, and now that the state fills, well, the state seems to be losing its grip on power, losing power to other institutions and other players. Politics is something that is becoming very divisive and divided. There are a lot of anti-establishment movements going on. Again, we've talked about this a lot, very similar to the Reformation with the things that were going on with the people versus the church, so to say, and the other institutional power players that were involved in all of that. Well, we have this similar thing going today. And the parallel for the class of the nobility that came up or the bishops and the church hierarchy that came up after Rome fell, the modern example would be corporations, the corporate world. That is who is in the background in today's world. They are already intermixed with the state. They already play a lot of these roles where they are facilitating a lot of the things that the, that the state is doing, and they would be the natural players and natural institutions to pick up the slack as the state starts to fall down. Now, all empires do fall. That does include the American empire and that will happen eventually. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen 100 years from now. I have no idea. I can't tell the future. But we can see that these trends and patterns do look eerily similar to patterns that we have seen in the past with the Roman Empire, with the Reformation, and now playing out again today. So regardless of exactly when all this comes to be, it does seem that the state as a political authority is starting to break up in some way to some degree and that is something that 
will play out in a similar way where there will be a power vacuum. There will be a vacuum of a role for an institution to play in governing society. And again, that role will likely be corporations who would manage resources, who would manage distribution, who is going to manage the economy of a given country or the economy of the whole world. We live in a globally connected world with global supply chains. Who is going to manage all of these things if all of the individual nations and countries are starting to have all this infighting and they're operating so inefficiently and ineffectively and their people are not even looking up to them and trusting them as much. And now we have these corporations that are now also international. They are also global. They are essentially what make up the economy of all these different countries and of the world as a whole. They don't necessarily have a nation that they are bound to. They deal with many different nations, many different countries, many different laws. These corporations are international. They are the logical player to fill this role as the state starts to lose some of this power and some of these roles. Now, corporations more than likely would not really have any interest in dealing with politics. That's not really something for the corporate world. Theirs would be in the realm more of economics. And that would make a lot of sense because you can leave the politics to your local areas, your local regions, your local sectors and countries and states, however it's broken up, but you could have the economic decisions, the resource decisions, these types of negotiations and trade and things like this. Those could be done on a global level in the corporate world through maybe corporate councils of some kind where you have Uh, multiple corporations and any given industry make up a council for that industry, and then they can make decisions about how to handle things on a global scale um, as far as resources and economics are concerned. That would make a lot of sense. And that, in a sense, is the idea of technocracy, where you have these corporate experts that are not in elected positions, not tied to any given country, but cover a whole area. This is often referred to as a technate. The original idea back in the 30s was that the North American technate would handle everything. So you'd have Canada, America, and Mexico, and they would form this body, this technate, and all of this would be done through um, expert councils, and this is how it would play out. But in today's world, we're in a much more global world. This would be either a global technate or something that would be the Western world as a whole, maybe Europe and America, Canada, Mexico, these types of countries in the Western side of the world at the very least. And if there was a breakup, it would probably be uh, some of the Middle East, as well as the Eastern countries such as China and Russia, um, Turkey, places like this that uh, are probably not quite as interested in the same ideologies as the West, so to say. And so there could be a breakup. It's not necessarily this uh, new world order of a world government, so to say, but it is, in a sense, a new world order. There's a lot of talk today about the Great Reset or a new economic order. If you look into the literature and the conferences with the World Economic Forum, uh, I've mentioned Event 201, where they were playing out a pandemic scenario just before the coronavirus outbreak with Gates Foundation involved. That was hosted by the World Economic Forum. So this is a player that is someone I have um, at least 
indirectly referenced, but a lot of players from the Council on Foreign Relations, which I've also mentioned many times, and the EU, the World Economic Forum, the IMF, the World Bank, a lot of these different places have mentioned these phrases of a new economic order and a great reset. And the idea here is that our current economic order of capitalism is one that grows inequality. It is not fair for all people. There is a lot of corruption, and it is not a good economic order to have for our world, our progressive world that wants equality for everyone. And so we need a new economic order because we are not happy and satisfied with the old one. We need a new one that takes into account taking care of the environment and sustainable development, um, using resources sustainably, cutting down uh, pollution, as well as things like racial equality and economic equality and equality of rights and gender equality and all of these different things. We need an economic system that inherently ties in all of these different things. And that is the thought. That is the thought behind this idea of a new economic order and the idea behind the Great Reset is that, well, obviously, if you want a new economic order, then you have to get rid of the old economic order. And what's the best way to do that? Well, you would have to have the old one crash. It Well, at least it would not be very realistic to think that people would just out of nowhere say, hey, yeah, we like the sound of that new one. Let's go with that. And yeah, let's forget capitalism. We're not going to use that one anymore. That's not the way it works. Capitalism more than likely would have to fail Officially, there would have to be some sort of crash that would get people on board even more so and really shift things over to this new economic order. And that is the idea of the Great Reset, where you would have this reset of economic orders where capitalism goes down and this new sustainable development technocracy type order comes up and that is the way it would go. So these things have been discussed. There are plenty of tweets on Twitter and conferences at the UN and all kinds of places where these are being discussed, articles in foreign affairs from Council on Foreign Relations. It's not some secret conspiracy. It is something that many people in those places and organizations want to see happen. The Rockefeller Foundation, the Gates Foundation, a lot of places have talked about these different ideas and concepts, and so none of these should be very new to you. I have mentioned these many times. Now, going all the way back to the fall of the Roman Empire again, one of the main roles of the state at the time, being the Roman Empire, was to handle disputes. Dispute resolution was almost exclusively done by the state, by the Roman state. Well, as the Roman Empire fell, someone had to fill that role. In all organized societies, there needs to be a way for people to work out their disagreements. And this time period was no less crucial in this regard than the time period before under the Roman Empire. But the Roman state wasn't there anymore, and their system of courts wasn't really in place. Things were broken apart, and coming into the Middle Ages, what you ended up having were decentralized court systems where you had voluntary dispute resolution 
And these would spring up in certain areas and regions where you would have different lords, different families, different tribes, um, different bishops, different whoever that would have disputes with other people in power close by to them. And these disputes would have to be figured out because if not, it would be settled by war. And war is very costly, both in money and in resources and in lives. And it is not a very good thing. It's not something that most people want to be involved in. And so there is definitely a strong incentive to work out disagreements without having to go to war every time you disagree with somebody or every time someone wrongs you or every time a thief breaks into someone's house who is on your territory there needs to be a better way to deal with this. And so that's where you had these courts that would spring up and basically both parties would agree to adhere to the decision that was made by the court and they would do so. Now, this didn't always work. There wasn't really the same enforcement power as the might of the Roman Empire had, but oftentimes this would work. And again, there were these incentives for peace and stability. That's what everybody wanted so that they could continue to grow their food and go to church and get married and have kids and raise their families and gather their resources and maybe fight outside invaders that might come in, the barbarians at the gates, those kinds of things. And so you needed peace and stability in order to handle all of these other things. But again, there wasn't the enforcement to make sure that all of this would come into play. It was more of just an incentive system, which often worked and uh, often it also did not work. The law codes that were being discussed there were usually based on common law and often a an offshoot of Roman law, and that was the way things worked out. Now, if you look at the British Empire, they worked off of a common law system as well, and a lot of that stemmed from Roman law as well. And so this is something that did not just fade away after the Middle Ages. It continued to be used. It's a legitimate system that has been used in the past and even is used to this day. But that's the way that things played out. It wasn't that as the Roman Empire fell, all of a sudden no one could figure out how to handle a dispute and there was complete chaos in the streets everywhere. No, no, you had people fill these roles because in an organized society, a civilized society, someone will fill these roles because there is a need. And that is something that we know through market incentives that if there is a need, someone will fill it and there are incentives to do so. Therefore, it will be done. Now, you could go to spontaneous order. You could go to the market incentives. You could go to lots of different ways of explaining this. You could just look at history, but this is the way things play out. And we see that again, that as the church fell, all of a sudden you had this vacuum for who's going to figure out religious matters and theology, who's going to determine the rights of individuals and where those come from. And so now these start to be determined by the king, not the church, because the church fell and as a unified institution, it didn't exist anymore, at least in that same vein. And so now you needed something else. And again, that's where the kings came into play. That's where these the beginnings of the nation state came into play. If you look at the treaties of Westphalia and the Treaty of Augsburg, this was the idea here, where now the king could determine what religion all of his subjects followed. And you later got into, well, your subjects can follow whatever religion they want, but if they're going to practice their religion publicly, they will follow this certain religion that the king is setting forth. And where do your rights come from? And how do we determine what rights any individual has? Well, 
it's determined by the king. The king decides this and makes decrees and makes laws, and this is what we follow. Well, although this sounds like a fairly authoritarian and centralized response to the question of how do we handle disagreements and rights and these types of things— it actually is a lot more decentralized than having this universal church that presides over all of Christendom and decides theological matters and rights of all people and how these are to be handled. It's usually done by a decree from the Pope and from the church. Well, as this broke up, now all of a sudden you had these dozens of different kings and lords and nobles that were making different decisions for their different regions and areas. And you did have the consolidation of the Thirty Years' War. So you had these bigger territories than there were before. But again, it was much more broken apart than having one universal body that handled a lot of these types of things. And so it was this decentralization, in a sense, of these different territories and these different rulers over each of their territories, and each one would make different decisions in different areas regarding different subjects. They would determine rights for different classes and different places and all kinds of things like this. So there was this sense of decentralization, at least relatively to the centralization of the universal church ruling over all of Christendom in a way. But as time passed, these things did get more and more and more centralized, where even in a given territory, a given proto-nation, so to say, the king gave a lot of leeway and a lot of autonomy to the local lords and the local nobility and how they handled their own districts and their own people. Well, that started to go away and you started to have more of an authoritarian role being played by the king, by the leader of the area and a lot of that power that belonged to the local lords and the local nobility started to funnel to the king and to the state bureaucracy and these things became more and more central especially as you started getting into constitutional monarchies where all of these things are institutionalized in the law code and centralized into this one source. And then everybody follows this one centralized source of rights and laws and dictates by their rulers. And so you have, again, this decentralization that becomes more and more centralized, just like in the Middle Ages, you had these decentralized court systems. And those did become more and more centralized as the church started to play a bigger and bigger role. They already had these hierarchies, these connections already set up. And so as they were playing a bigger and bigger role, well, who are you going to trust to deal with disputes and to have a fair outlook on these things with two differing parties? Well, the church would be a natural player in this. And the church did come out and make statements. And the pope would say that, hey, this thing is right and this thing is wrong. And these types of people have these rights and these types of people do not have these rights. And the Pope would dictate what a Christian should believe in these different areas, and basically all of Western Europe was considered Christian. And so the church played a more and more centralizing role in things like dispute resolution, because then even if you had a court that was totally separate from the church, they would often look to the church so that they could carry out a just sentence, a Christian sentence. And how would you know what a Christian sentence would be in a given dispute if it were not for this centralized body, the church, telling you what is right and what is wrong and how you should handle these types of things? So again, decentralization and 
further centralizing until you get to the point of breaking apart. Then you have the same thing with decentralization in these types of issues with rights and law and theology. And it's decentralized amongst all these different nobles. And that becomes more and more centralized into centralized monarchies and into the nation state as a whole. Another example of this would be the early United States of America. It began with the Articles of Confederation, where they decided to set up this system where basically you would have independent states, all of the colonies would be independent states, but they would basically form an alliance where they would work together, they would form an army together and fight together and raise money together and do these different things as a unit, but they were still independent states. It was still a fairly decentralized system here. Even if you look at the Declaration of Independence, that went all the way down to the individual level where you do not have a right to rule over me as an individual because I have these natural rights that stem from God or from just my nature as a human being. And you cannot take that away from me, you being the king, you being Britain. And so the idea behind the Declaration of Independence and behind the Articles of Confederation was fairly decentralized. Well, then you get into the Constitution where the Federalists came in and wanted to centralize a federal government, and they did so. And so that became more centralized. And again, this is the governing body handling things like disputes and laws and rights, just like these other parallels I just talked about. Well, then as the Constitution starts to evolve and the United States bureaucracy and the nation state itself starts to evolve, you get to where you are today where it is very centralized. You technically do have some things that different states decide on their own, but a lot of stuff is handled at the federal level, and the federal state is the one that hands down a lot of the different dictates and the laws, and they handle a lot of these different disputes, even within the jurisdiction of each individual state. These individual states are not states in the sense that the original founding fathers were thinking. They're just various units that make up this one centralized entity, the United States of America. And so there's another example of this decentralization aspect that coalesces into a more centralized version. And the idea that we're talking about here is that eventually the American empire, the state, does uh, build corruption and inefficiencies and bureaucracy and starts to fall at some point. And so that's what we're talking about as a more modern day time period. Well, if we look into that, well, you have the fall of the state and what happens? Well, someone else needs to fill this role. And again, if we're talking about rights and laws and dispute resolution, just like these other parallels, well, who is that going to be? Well, we do have examples of that playing out today. We have things like um, dispute resolution, where a lot of businesses will voluntarily enter into dispute resolution between companies or between an employee and the company itself or customers and the company or it, it just depends wherever it is needed and there is some dispute that needs to be heard out oftentimes it is cheaper, more final, more confidential, and just uh, more incentivized for a company to use dispute resolution than to go through the federal court system or the local court system involving the state. It's a lot easier to handle things on their own, handle them in-house. And dispute resolution is a very popular option in today's world, especially in the corporate world. 
Another example of how you handle these different aspects would be private certification. So it's not that the state says, hey, this person can perform this job and this person is qualified to do this job, even though the state does fill that role in a lot of different places. We also have a private version of that with private certification. So for example, if you're getting into IT or cybersecurity, there are certain certifications that you get. And if you get a certain number of certs, then you can apply for a job with a given corporation. And they're very likely to hire you because you have these certifications under your belt, regardless of your college degree or where you went to college or whether you went to college or not, regardless of anything that the state says that you are or aren't qualified for something. There is this private system for determining these things, and that would be private certification. There are also different bodies that are non-governmental organizations that decide a lot of different things where they'll come together and make agreements and make a pact that, hey, we will all abide by the decisions that are made here. Usually it's different corporations get together with different foundations and different councils. They meet together and determine best practices for a given industry or for a given topic related to things like maybe pollution or how you handle rights in the workplace and gender equality and just all these different things that, yes, the state plays a large role in all of these different things. But there's also this private, more decentralized option that's already there. And again, if the state falls, that is the logical thing to step up into its place would be, like I mentioned before, maybe technocratic councils and given industries, and then they come together to make more universal global decisions. And then the industries can handle their own decisions in their own industry. And maybe you have one that's specifically related to environmentalism and those types of issues and any corporation that has voluntarily chosen to abide by the given dictates of their local industry council or anything like that, then maybe they also are abiding by the given recommendations from this environmental council as well. And you could have these systems, you can already see how that could fairly easily play out even given the way things are done today. Uh, another thing that kind of crossed my mind recently is in one of the interviews, I think it was Benjamin Jacobs with the Wittenberg Westphalia podcast. Pretty sure it was him that mentioned multiple times that the church didn't have as much power as people think they had. That yes, in a way, the church was a universal power over all of Christendom, but also in a way, it was the local rulers that really held a lot of the power on the ground. And the church could, they could recommend things and they could ask for things, but they didn't necessarily have the same standing army. They didn't have the same force behind their dictates. And so even though they are looked at as being the universal body that was, in a sense, ruling over all of Western Europe, in reality, the nobles on the ground held a lot of the real power. Well, this definitely makes sense as you look at how things played out, where even that facade of power that the church might have had, and there is definitely debate over how much real power they had and didn't have, but this just an idea that um, came up in one of my interviews, so it came to my mind. But when that power of the church started to fade away, well, who is the one to step in? Like we've talked about, it was the nobility. They are the ones. And if you think about what Benjamin Jacobs had said, that the church didn't have as much power as people think they had, and it was really the nobility, the local rulers that had a lot of that power, well, that would make a lot of sense that then as the church started to, in a sense, step down, not necessarily voluntarily from their role, that these local leaders would step up and they would be the logical 
placeholders for these types of things. Well, it's the same way in today's world. Who has the real power in today's nation states? Well, is it the government? Well, in a way, yes. And governments do have the police. They have the military. They have force behind them. But in today's world, a lot of warfare, although we do have plenty of physical warfare, it does exist um, and is constantly going on. And there are a lot of issues there I've talked about. But a lot of the issues are resolved economically. A lot of warfare is fought economically. And who owns this economic sphere? Well, it is the corporate world. And heck, even the physical warfare, who handles this? Who makes the weapons? Who supplies the contractors to fight in the wars? Who handles the software to run the drones for drone strikes? Who makes the planes? Who makes the guns? Who makes the rockets? Who makes all of these different things to make warfare possible? It's not the individual governments. They don't do this. It's the corporations, the defense contractors. The corporate world really holds a lot of the power, even in the physical realm, and then much less the rest of the state and how they run. Yes, the state builds the roads, but although there are some federal employees that are involved with that, a lot of times it's just contracted out to a contractor that builds roads. It's what they do, but they're a private company. It is the corporate realm that handles a lot of these things. And so who holds the real power in, let's say, America in today's world? Well, I would say that the boots on the ground are with corporations, that they are the ones that are really holding the power behind the scenes and on the ground and actually doing these things and making these things. And they are the ones that are organizing the economy and make up the economy. It's not the state itself, even though the state does have plenty of power, just like the church did have plenty of power. Again, you can play this both ways. But it, it does make sense that, well, then, if the state starts to break apart, who's going to fill that role? Well, obviously, it's going to come from the corporate world. They already hold a lot of that power, and that's only increasing. We have a corporatist state, this corporatism, crony capitalism, whatever you want to call it, where it's not just the state, but it's not just corporations. We don't have a fascist state or communism or corporatocracy or a technopoly. We don't have any of these things where corporations actually run everything. But we also don't have this system where the state actually runs anything. It's this the unholy mixture of the two that run everything. And I am saying that it's the corporate side of this that actually makes the goods. It actually carries out the services. It actually does things efficiently and effectively. And the state doesn't. And that's just the way it is. Now, if you look at the actual law of the land, we can go back to the Constitution again for the United States of America. There is a written law code. Even if you go to common law, this is something that is established that can be referred back to. You have this law code, this law system that you can fall back on. And so the thought might be that, hey, well, if the state falls down and the corporate world takes the place, then what do you have? In today's world, you're not just going to have a decentralized voluntary court system. That's probably not going to happen. You can look to something like anarcho-capitalism for ways that that could technically happen, but realistically, that's probably not going to happen. But we do see that there are options here. There could easily be a constitution of sorts, I don't know what you would call it, but that let's say that there are technocratic councils that handle different industries and different economies and different 
areas of resource allocation, things like that. And they could all have written codes that they all agree to. So you get the basic laws, so to say, the basic dictates and regulations and things that they will follow. And everybody signs on to that. And everybody would be all the corporations that have signed up to a given council. And then all of those corporations would be following this written law. And this written law could be combined into one more global uh, cross-industry law, and that would be, I, I guess, kind of like a global constitution. That that would make sense. I mean, it isn't too far out there. It would work well. You'd have a written law that everybody could fall back on, everybody could look at. If there was a corporation that did not sign up to agree with this, then they might not get as much business. They might not be able to do business with the other corporations involved with the local industry council. A lot of customers might not want to use them because they haven't agreed to these uh, wonderful and benevolent goals that these councils have set up for equality of all different kinds, and they're wanting to make the world a better place. And this evil corporation is just trying to make a profit, and it's not going to agree to these standards, and so we're not going to use them. Uh, That kind of idea. There could be this pressure, so to say, to join and agree with these things. But you could have a written law code. That makes sense. Even on the internet, you have things like crypto manifestos, where you have a given system where it's written out. It's a constitution of sorts, but it's over an area. It's over cyberspace. And even that a sector of cyberspace and that this is how this given cryptocurrency or blockchain is going to operate. But there is a written system and how all of that is going to play out. So if I am going to use, let's say, Ethereum, I can look at the code for Ethereum and how that currency functions, as well as how that blockchain functions and what their white paper says, what their manifestos say, and how all of this is going to be handled. How will they handle something like a dispute resolution? And in the crypto world, a lot of this has not been figured out yet. But the idea is there. Again, it's not that if the state fell and the corporate world kind of took its place, that all of a sudden there would be chaos. Well, no, you would have people filling these roles. And a lot of these things would be done in a very similar manner to what we have today. Uh, Things like a written law code and organized dispute resolution and things like this. You can even go back to the historical example and look at something like city charters. They were something like constitutions. They guaranteed rights. They they had written laws that everyone would follow. And you could go back and look at that. The Italian city-states are a really good example of this. This is not a new concept. It was around then. It is around now and will probably be around in the future. It is a way that works well for organized society. But just because things change in society and the way things are handled within a state or within the economy, it doesn't mean that these things are just going to disappear. They will still exist. And there are easy and obvious ways that this could play out and kind of fairly smoothly transition over. And hey, maybe you do have a great reset where the state falls and these types of systems come into play with these global institutions, corporations, organizations, all of them kind of handling a lot of these issues. And again, the political realm being pushed much more localized. Uh, This does kind of make sense and it all plays out as all of these parallels do and so we will continue with that line of thought next week to make the closing remarks very brief i will just say thank you to everyone thank you to listeners and people that write reviews and ratings and the patrons and everybody thank you very much thank you for listening i'm out peace 
This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.